to the Critical Care Obstetrics Podcast. My name is Stephanie Martin, Medical Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, and I'm here with Julie Arafe, Simulation Director at Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics. Today, we're going to be reviewing a case of obstetric hemorrhage. Of course, we'll be taking you through the clinical scenario, but we also really plan to focus on opportunities that can improve care. We really want you to learn how to, from this case and maybe take it to the next patient that you see and think about what can I take away from this scenario that will improve the care in the unit where I work. And I think any discussion around improving care has to re- involve simulation. Now, Julie, from your perspective, how do you take a case? We're going to go through this one. People will hear about all the opportunities here. But when you have a case like this, how do you physically use it in the unit to improve care? Well, thanks, Stephanie. Anytime that you have a case with a outcome that is less than optimal, you can certainly use that case as a simulation scenario. It needs to be clearly um, covered in the briefing before the scenario that this case has been selected, not to point out what one single person did or what one individual did, but to look at where the breaks happened that allowed the less than optimal outcome, and in this case, harm to the patient to occur. We don't ever want that to happen. So looking at this case is not to look at individual performance, but is to look at where the communication broke down, where the process broke down. Your goal in simulation is to set up cognitive aids and structures and interprofessional team discussion so that the team does the right thing for the patient easily and every single time. So when you identify those breaks, when you identify where the standard wasn't met, then you can put in place a structure or a process that allows the team to more easily choose standard of care the next time. Yeah, and I think that that point of using your actual case with all the details uh, that that took place is a really crucial one because otherwise what what I've seen happen is the team sent, tends to say, well that would never happen. We would never let that happen. And so it feels unrealistic. So when you take something that actually did happen, nobody can argue that it couldn't or wouldn't. Yes. And I always recommend using your own cases and not just pulling scenarios off of the internet. It's a much better approach for training. So let's start by introducing um, this patient. She's a 37-year-old prim or gravid woman. She's 39 weeks gestation, admitted for labor induction. Her prenatal care, medical and surgical history are pretty unremarkable. Her hemoglobin on admission is normal at 12 And the plan was to do a mesoprostol induction followed by oxytocin when appropriate. She progresses in her labor. She gets an epidural and she pushes for about three hours. And around 9 p.m. that evening, the OB is at the bedside and calls for a non-urgent cesarean birth for rest of descent. And the plan is to give her, rebolus her epidural so that she's comfortable and and follow another cesarean that was um, uh, going to take place first and then they were going to happen after, their, her birth was going to happen after that case. Shortly after midnight, um, a female infant is delivered with um, APGARs of eight and nine and intraoperatively, 
She lost about 700 cc's, not unusual for a cesarean birth. She peed about 200, um, and she got about uh, 1.2 liters of lactated ringers over the course of the case. She gets admitted to the, to the recovery room, the post-anesthesia care unit, and her vital signs at the time of admission show a blood pressure of 114 over 59, a pulse of 130, respiratory rate of 16, an oxygen sat of 97%. Now, I want to stop and acknowledge right here, we've already got abnormal vital signs with pretty significant tachycardia. Yes, this patient could be in pain, but this patient just had surgery and in, his, in, in the immediate recovery period, I've also got to have volume depletion due to hemorrhage on the differential list right away. Mm-hmm. And this would be the first point that I would introduce an interprofessional discussion about what's happening with this patient, what needs to happen with this patient. And even if nothing, which it sounds like something needs to be done, but even if nothing is done at this point, the team can look at this and go, okay, when is the next step initiated? At what point is the next step initiated? Well, nothing was initiated at this time. They were just documented. And an hour later, the nurse notes um, moderate to heavy lochia with no clots. She does get a scale to start weighing the pads and gives the patient uh, methergen. This was presumably on a standing um, order, kind of like a standard order set in that was already written to, to be administered in the post-anesthesia care unit because she did not call to get that order. The clot uh, of QBL was 470 cc's. Now this, I want to make a point that this is in addition to the 700 cc's that she lost during the surgery. So, and her blood pressure is 102 over 56. Her pulse is 136. The nurse calls the charger in to come to the bedside, and she does. And 10 minutes later, they have another bleed that's measured at 380 cc's. So we're now at a cumulative QBL of 850 cc's in the PACU. She's given mesoprostol 800 micrograms rectally. Her pulse is now up to 150 and her blood pressure is 119 over 59. And I want to make a comment here that this is what happens when you have um, youth and no other medical comorbidities. This is a healthy functioning heart that is compensating. So just to remind you, Cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. As volume goes down, heart rate will go up in order to maintain cardiac output. So this heart is working very, very hard. The patient is still normotensive. But the nurse recognizes there's a problem here. We've got 850 cc blood loss documented in the PACU, and the patient is significantly tachycardic, and she calls the OB, who is asleep at home. Okay, we're now about an hour and a half post-delivery. The nurse notes the, that the MD was notified of moderate to heavy lochia, no clots, QBL and PACU 850 cc's, maternal tachycardia, methergen and mesoprostol given, and the OB's response was, okay, sounds good, keep me posted. So I want to stop right here and talk about opportunities at this point. Julie, you want to comment on some opportunities you've observed? Well, at this point... What what stands out to me is that despite what they're doing, the maternal heart rate is still rising. So what that tells me is that in response to all of this treatment, the the patient is still having to compensate. So 
opportunities for improvement. I think with the report given to a physician who is sleeping at home, there needs to be a very clear statement of what's happening. This patient, we've done two different treatments. We are still seeing abnormality. And I think when you voice the your concerns in that way, making it very clear, it's helpful to the, to the person you're speaking to, to get the same sense of urgency that you have at the bedside. I would also recommend at this point that the, the, the nurse say, I need an, a physician at the bedside. I need a physician to come in and see this patient. You've given two medications and you still have a heart rate that's climbing. That's clearly criteria. With that amount of blood loss, there needs to be, at this point, there needs to be blood being ordered. So when you have an approach to hemorrhage that is based on both volume of, of blood that's lost and the patient's response to that blood loss I think you have a better means of responding and getting the right actions done for the patient at that time. This, these two criteria here, the amount of bleeding and the response with the vital signs, the heart rate going up, require at least a second IV, require at least the beginnings of preparing to administer blood volume. So this is where having a staged approach, looking at how much blood loss, what is required when that amount of blood loss is noted, and putting some structure behind that is extremely important. That needs to be in the checklist. There needs to be a standardized way that this is at least approached. Doesn't mean every single time that's what's going to happen, but this is the basis for discussion. And I think that basis of discussion is necessary when you are trying to set the stage for someone who's not at the bedside, why you need them at the bedside. 100%. And I, I should note that this facility, um, I will commend them for doing quantitative blood loss, but this facility did, was not managing hemorrhage using any sorts of staged-based approach. So it was a um, very physician and provider dependent response to the amount of blood loss. And if you count the amount of blood loss that this patient had in the OR plus the PACU, she's now at 1.5 liters down. And that's real and maybe even underestimated given the degree of her tachycardia. So clearly this patient has hemorrhaged and additional act action is required but I want to also comment on the, the feedback of, okay, sounds good, keep me posted. Well, keep me posted about what? That's a very vague statement. So as the physician, um, first of all, you need to be at the bedside. But second of all, um, I would want to tell the nurse exactly what I would want to know if it's not already specified in a pro protocol or a guideline. As the nurse, you need, you've already given quite a few concerns. So what needs to happen next that would then require a change in in the response okay so that's mm -hmm. super super important what are the what are the criteria 
And then if there's a hospitalist available in the hospital, well, what's their role? Are they, you know, it's it's hard to, to defend if you've got somebody sitting in a hospital who's qualified to take care of this, who's not involved in the care of this patient. So we'll visit that more in a minute. So 10 minutes after the call, um, the patient has lost her ability to compensate. She is now hypotensive with a blood pressure of 77 over 40. That translates to a mean arterial pressure of 52. And I want to point out here that your mean arterial pressure should be above 65. And that holds, whether you're pregnant or non-pregnant, a threshold of 65. So this patient is pretty significantly hypotensive. She's still tachycardic with a pulse of 136. And the nurse describes large clots with fundal massage that weigh out to about 530 cc's. So now we're accumulative in the PACU of 1380 cc's of blood loss plus the 700 that was lost in the OR. At this point, the nurse doesn't call the OB back. She calls the CRNA to the bedside. The CRNA starts a vasopressor infusion with norepinephrine um, because the blood pressure at the time the CRNA arrives is 52 over 48, which is a mean arterial pressure of 36, and the pulse is 117. So we have a nurse and a CRNA, and the CRNA has started a vasopressor. Now I have a couple of comments here. Vasopressors are very potent medications. Number one, physician needs to be at the bedside if you're going to be starting vasopressors. The OB has to be there. We have to be asking ourselves, why does this patient need vasopressors, number one? And number two, you need to also be volume replacing this patient, ideally with blood, but at minimum with crystalloids until blood is available. In addition, you need central lines. You need an arterial and a venous central line in this patient at this point because we're lo- we should be anticipating uh, massive transfusion at this point. The fact that there's not a checklist and a protocol is contributing to the delay here and the lack of recognition. I think if I can just interject very quickly, when, when you talk about the checklist, you need to think of the checklist as a series of what what actions and what options do you have for treatment? Not every option is going to be appropriate for every patient. So I can understand and fully support the physician coming in and determining this is the best option for this patient or this is the best option for this patient. So not every option on your checklist is going to occur for every single patient. But there is no situation where you would say, that pressors and no physician at the bedside is appropriate for this patient. So having that list of options really, I think, gives the nurse the the impetus or the ability to begin to question, we need a physician at the bedside. I need to get a physician at the bedside. And if this type of situation is happening with any frequency, there needs to be a restructuring of how you're going to get that physician at the bedside when you have someone right there on the unit that is there to take care of patients. Right. Now, so the nurse has called the CRNA and they're starting, they started vasopressors. And so the nurse now calls the OB at home again and um, informs them that the patient had another blood loss um, greater than 500 cc's for a total QBL in the PACU of 1380 cc's. 
They've started tranexamic acid and informed the OB that the CRNA was at the bedside starting a second IV, drawing labs, and that the CRNA ordered two units of packed red cells to hold. So not to infuse, just to hold. The doctor agreed over the phone and ordered a stat CBC and coags and instructed to call with the results. Well, at this point, the nurse has her charge nurse at the bedside and they've now called a third nurse to the bedside. The nurses clearly seem to be demonstrating that they understand there's something significantly abnormal here and they're trying to get help by calling additional nurses, calling the OB at home again, and calling the CRNA. Now, an hour and 20 minutes roughly after arriving in the PACU, we have some labs back and she is anemic with a hemoglobin of 8.7, platelet count of 313,000. Her PTI and RPTT are normal and her fibrinogen is still normal at this point of 440. The nurse is having difficulty at this time getting blood pressure readings. The pulse is 144 and her oxygen saturation is 76%. Now I want to comment on her on this issue at this point. Think to yourself about why this nurse might be having giving difficulty getting a blood pressure reading and why this patient might be hypoxemic. From my perspective, the patient is not perfusing. She's on a vasoconstrictor, so her perfusion to her extremities, especially because she's massively volume depleted, is going to be diminished. So this patient may not have a lung issue at this point. This is most likely a perfusion issue, and that's contributing to the fact that they're not able to get blood pressure readings. They start her on a 10-liter non-rebreather mask. She's still bleeding. We're now up to 1650 cc's blood loss in the PACU, not counting the operating room. And they move her blood pressure cuff to her leg where they're able to get a blood pressure of 86 over 49. That's a mean arterial pressure of 58 and a pulse of 136. Now I want to remember, reminder, this patient delivered, you know, shortly after midnight, three hours later. So we're all in, this is in the middle of the night. The OB hospitalist is called to the bedside. So the nurses are need, they recognize they need help. Um, and they've asked the OB hospitalist to come to the bedside. Now at this point, she's bled some more and her cumulative PACU blood loss is about two and a half liters of blood. This is in addition to 700 that was lost in the operating room itself. So we're at about 3.2 liters blood loss and her pulse is 153. Five minutes later, they call the OB again. So they called the hospitalist, we need you at the bedside. And then they get on the phone and call the OB. This is the third time they've called the OB since she's been in the PACU. They inform the OB that the hospitalist is at the bedside to evaluate the blood loss. They inform the OB that the total blood loss is about two and a half liters and they report the lab values. The OB over the phone says, give her one unit of packed cells and continue evaluating the blood loss. If she continues to bleed, we'll consider placing a back balloon. Call with updates as needed. There seems to be a disconnect between what's being told and what's being heard. At this point, the OB hospitalist says the OB needs to be at the bedside and tells the nurse to tell the OB that if they're not en route, I'm taking her back to the operating room. So they call the OB again now for the fourth time and say the hospitalist wants you at the bedside because the patient may need to go to the operating room. So let's stop for a minute, Julie, and talk about the myriad of opportunities we have at this point in time um, to improve the care of the next patient. 
Do you want to start? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I'll reiterate that I think from my perspective, from the outside looking in, it seems that the nurses understand something is happening here and they know that action needs to be taken there. They seem to be working hard to try and get people to the bedside, but they're nurses. They cannot order the medications. They cannot perform the procedures, um, but they didn't specifically request the OB's present at, presence at the bedside. So I think that was a lost opportunity early on. Mm-hmm. And as a physician, I want to know why the OB hospitalist feels they cannot speak directly to the OB, putting the nurses in that middleman position. Um, you know, the OB hospitalist had an opportunity to get on the phone and say, hey, doc to doc, this is what's happening. And this is what I am doing. I don't, it, it's almost as if they're waiting for permission to treat the patient. And so that to me begs the question of what's the culture in this hospital between the OBs, the nurses and the hospitalists, and what's preventing this hospitalist from coming in and just transfusing, taking the patient to the OR, doing what needs to to be done. So I'm I'm wondering, is there lack of clarity here? Has there been some negative interaction in the past? Is there lack of trust? You know, what's what's happened that's preventing this hospitalist from from just doing what needs to be done? I agree. And um, this is where having a hemorrhage protocol and a hemorrhage checklist, the importance of these two documents cannot be overstated. Um, They give guidance. They give options. They give some structure to the response of the nurses. So clearly, I agree. The nurses understand there's a problem. The nurses are working to get the patient what the patient needs, but they're not being very successful. And uh, just a couple comments that I think could be worked out in simulation. What information does the physician need? And I I think using an SBAR format with situation, background, assessment, and recommendation, and clearly stating a physician needs to be at the bedside. If you're not going to be at the bedside, we are getting the hospitalist to the bedside. And definitely this patient would have met that criteria well before the CRNA was brought in. This is an opportunity to work with the CRNA to see what options this patient should have before pressors are being used. And I would note there's no notation that the OB was informed that pressors were being used on the patient. And we've seen this in cases time and time and time again, when the the anesthesiologist or the CNA, it's the first case I've heard of a CRNA, but the anesthesiologist at the head of bed are starting pressors because they don't like the patient's vital signs and the OB has no knowledge that this is occurring and looks up and doesn't understand that these vital signs are based on the patient receiving pressors. So the ability to communicate in an interprofessional manner and determine when do physicians need to be in the bedside, this can be discussed clearly in simulation. So the opportunities in this case are numerous and definitely simulation is a great way to get everyone on board. If physicians have, um, if they have the reluctance to come in based on what's 
stated in the protocol, then there, there's recourse for them, not when the patient is in a hemorrhage, but attending whatever meetings they need to attend to get that protocol changed or to be convinced that protocol is not going to be changed. And this is the standard that they're going to be held to. So that this, this discussion about not at the bedside, who's at the bedside, can they come to the bedside, is not something that's happening when a patient is in crisis. Yeah. And the other opportunity I want to point out here is that I think it's fantastic that QBL, it, it seems to be pretty consistently performed. I mean, all of the blood losses are documented very specifically. It was one of the first things that the nurse did was bring in a scale in order to begin the QBL process. But that information, just like abnormal vital signs, is only as helpful as the response. So if you have if you just continue to document significant blood loss but it doesn't translate to action that's a huge gap here. So from my perspective this is a a a this is a classic case and a huge opportunity for implementation of stage-based hemorrhage management where the the degree of blood loss and like to the point you were making earlier, the degree of blood loss that's documented and the vital signs that become abnormal dictate necessary actions. And these staged brace protocols can translate very quickly and easily into checklists that can be used at the bedside. For example, we have a patient on vasopressors. They're having difficulty monitoring a blood pressure, but there's no discussion about an arterial or a venous central line. So this is that's where a checklist can help when you're cognitive overload, lots of things happening all at once. Even if you've got an, an algorithm that's being followed, it's those can be difficult in the moment. The checklist can be very, very helpful. So a hemorrhage, a stage-based hemorrhage protocol that's practiced through simulation can help remove some of these barriers and facilitate the team doing the right thing. So it's all fine and good if the nurses recognize something's happening and document a lot of blood loss, but if it doesn't translate to action, the patient's not best served. I think as well, when you when you practice these types of things in simulation, you can look at this case and state, when are when is the criteria, when you're talking with other physicians, like in, in the debriefing, or if you do a deliberate practice setup where you're running through your actions ahead of time before the scenario, when should a physician be in the room? And you can ask a maternal fetal medicine specialist who's at that simulation. You can ask a physician who's at that simulation. And when you get that reinforcement as a nurse, then it it allows you to be uh, willing to go up the chain of command or chain of communication because you know that according to what others have, have been telling you, a physician should be at the bedside and then clearly practicing how you're going to go up the chain of command, what needs to be said, who's going to be called, and informing that provider. You're not coming in, but according to our criteria, I am going to activate the chain of command. I'm going to call this person and I'm going to tell them this and then give the provider the opportunity re to respond. So now getting back to the case, um, at this point, the hospitalist decides to transfuse two units of packed red blood cells and one unit of FFP. I will note that this was not the massive transfusion protocol. This was 
ordering a couple of units of blood and some FFP. This is roughly an hour after the first call to the OB at home, and the, the OB has been called four times now in that first hour. The charge nurse also called for the anesthesiologist at the bedside, and within 10 minutes, the, the first unit of blood is infusing. Her blood pressure improves slightly, 80 over 41. Her mean arterial pressure is 53. She's still significantly tachycardic at 155, and five minutes later, she's you know 68 over 44 with a MAP of 49 and still, tachycard- still significantly tachycardic in the 150s. They give her another dose of Methergen IM, and the patient's OB then arrives at the bedside, which is about an hour and a half after the first call. At this point, her mean arterial pressure is 37, blood pressure 54 over 31. Her pulse is in the 160s, and her oxygen sats are in the mid-80s. Ten minutes later, the anesthesiologist arrives and says, we're activating the massive transfusion protocol. This patient has lost well over three liters at that time, and she's moved to the operating room. Now, in the operating room, she's placed in stirrups. She's identified to have a boggy lower uterine segment. They evacuate a 750cc clot, and they start preparations for a suction DNC. While doing the speculum exam, she's bleeding, it looks like, from the cervix, so there's some oversewing of the cervix, um, and they do the DNC and get another 200 cc's of clot, so almost another liter in addition. So we're roughly four plus liters down, and the patient has received two units, approximately, uh, of blood. And they're in the operating room for about an hour and 10 minutes and decide, let's go to do an exploratory laparotomy with a possible hysterectomy. Um, While being draped for um, the surgery, she goes into cardiac arrest. At that time, she'd received a total of two units of PAC cells and one unit of FFP. The resuscitation commences and the OB proceeds with hysterectomy. They call for backup with gynecologic oncology and um, that support arrives while being while the patient is um, ongoing um, being coded. The oncologist notes that at the time of arrival, the patient was in visible evidence of pulmonary edema with fluid coming out of the ET tube and um, appeared to be in frank DIC. It's not a surprise that this patient's in DIC. She's lost a substantial amount of blood. And as you'll recall from other podcasts, her pulmonary edema is non-cardiogenic in nature because of the DIC, which has led to vascular damage and fluid leaking into the um, uh, lung spaces. They code her for about 90 minutes. Um, They get return of spontaneous circulation and transfer her to the intensive care unit. They did leave her abdomen open and packed, um, uh, but they did uh, apply a wound vac which is not unusual in these situations, anticipating that she's going to need um, reoperation um, because of the ongoing DIC and blood uh, and blood loss. With the massive transfusion protocol, she receives over 30 units of PAC cells, over 30 units of FFP, four units of platelets and cryoprecipitate. She gets a dose of factor seven and there's a tranexamic acid infusion going they were unable to perform QBL in the OVAR, but she had over 12 liters in the suction canisters. And in the OR prior to transfer, once the case was completed, after all of that blood, her hemoglobin was about seven and a half. She was still in DIC with an INR of 1.3, fibrinogen significantly low at 162. 
And four hours later, after even more equilibration takes place, she's in the ICU and her hemoglobin is 3.7 and her fibrinogen is 103. And I want to point out here, as you've heard us talk about in prior podcasts, these hemoglobins, when you're performing them in the moment, are artificially elevated and you can always expect them to decrease both from ongoing potential blood loss, equilibration or normalization as the fluid shifts occur and you understand what the true hemoglobin level is and not a false elevation of the hemoglobin, and hemolysis that's happening for a patient in DIC. So there are lots of reasons that can contribute to decreasing hemoglobin levels um, even after the acute bleeding episode has been resolved or controlled. This patient spent over two months in hospital and had several significant long-lasting complications, including renal failure requiring dialysis. Um, you can imagine the impact um, that this kind of, a, of, an, of an event has on the human body, and I'm sure that this patient's recovery extended long beyond her acute hospital stay. So, Julie, I don't know if you have any closing thoughts on, you know, how we can take lessons learned from this patient and apply them, you know, to future patients to try and and prevent morbidity and mortality. I'm certain every nurse that was in that room never wants to experience that again. So practicing and having a template as a checklist, an algorithm that lists all the types of treatments is such a helpful document. It provides some structure upon which you can continue to pursue actions in support of patient care. So utilizing the checklist, practicing in simulation, calling in other nurses to back up what your suspicions are, going up the chain of communication or the chain of command are the main opportunities that I see here. Yeah. And from the physician's perspective, you know, this kind of thing is traumatizing, obviously to the patient and her family. I think that goes without saying, but you know, the vicarious trauma that happens um, to the providers in the room, nurses, physicians, every other staff member that's involved in the care of, of these, uh, of patients that have these kind of, of issues, we want to do better. And I think, you know, if I can use this kind of as a call to action, this is more than just reading about what is hemorrhage and what are the common causes of hemorrhage. Physicians need to participate in simulations that are happening in their units. We have a lot of competing priorities we're generally not compensated for it. Makes it very difficult to participate. They're often during weekday work hours, where when we're in the operating room or seeing patients. But efforts need to be made to include physicians, and physicians need to do their best to be willing participants in simulation on your units. And part two would be as you go back to your units, especially those of you who have hospitalists. Do you understand what the role of the hospitalist is and how they will be utilized and how you can utilize them in an emergency to be your eyes and ears and your hands when you can't be present? I think it's a huge opportunity and we really need to find ways to try and maximize the involvement of the hospitalist at the bedside 
um, especially when we're providing care from home in these emergency situations. So hopefully you've taken some, some pearls and have some things, some lessons that you've learned from this case that you can take back to your own units and your own patients. We want to thank you as always for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. You can learn more about our company at www.clinicalconceptsnob.com. You can also follow us on our Facebook page, Clinical Concepts in Obstetrics, on Twitter at OB Critical Care, and on Instagram at Critical Care OB. Email us or send a direct message for any future podcast suggestions. This podcast was produced by Austin Baird. Are you looking to create a podcast? Please email me at podcastnashville at gmail. That is podcastnashville at gmail.com.